Uh, greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series. Uh, I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the institute. Thank you very much for coming on this uh, beautiful Friday evening, first week of spring so far. Very nice. Uh, thank you for joining our talk tonight on Monkey in Residence and Other Speculations by writer Xu Xi on her latest collection of essays, uh, which just uh, published recently in spring of no, earlier fall last year, fall 2022. Uh, we're so glad that she's able to join us tonight. Uh, Sushi has authored and as well as edited 19 books, and most recently The Fish in Fall and The Art and Craft of Asian Stories. Uh, an Indonesian Chinese native of Hong Kong, she has uh, long split her life between New York and Hong Kong, uh, a diehard transnational. Uh, she is also founder of Authors at Large and the Mongrel Writers Residence. Uh, she currently occupies the Jenks Chair in Contemporary Letters at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts. And you can follow her online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as LinkedIn at... X-U-X-I-W-R-I-T-E-R, Sushi Writer. And with that, please welcome Sushi. I'm going to be talking about my new collection, um, Monkey in Residence and Other Speculations. And it's not really essays. It's, it's a hybrid, and I'll talk a little bit more about that because it's both fiction and essays. Um, and... I've called this speculation and remembrance because really that's what the themes of the uh, book are and, and that's how they came together. Collections come together in a weird way. I call it misfits and hybridity. Um, this book came out in 2022, November, with Signal 8. And that's a publisher that holds a lot of my uh, backlist and published two of my previous collections. So they used to be in Hong Kong, and like a lot of people in Hong Kong, they moved. <laughs> they went to the UK, and so now the imprint is in the UK. And um, they told me that they wanted my book to be the first one in the new imprint. So I was like, okay, because my last book had come out like on tw in 2019, This Vicious Fall, was a collection of essays. And I was like, okay, so let me try to put a collection together, because I didn't have like a novel or a single book. Um, and so I was looking through m my old stories and essays, because a number of this, these uh, have been published before, and I realized I had a bunch of misfits that just haven't fit into any other collection. A lot of my earlier work was very Hong Kong focused, and this one has, you know, some focus in Hong Kong too, but I had these oddball stories, and, and of course with things that were happening in Hong Kong, I was writing a lot more essays about Hong Kong, so I was like, how do I put these together? So, um, the, the pieces in here were published any time from 2003 to 2021, which is a long period of time. There were a few that were not published until this book. Um, and in that period of time, a lot of things change. So the actual contents, it's 16 pieces, and they break out as eight fiction and eight creative nonfiction or essays. But to be perfectly honest, some of them are a little bit hybrid. They're kind of like where fiction and nonfiction meet. Um, and I got the idea, and you see, it's there. There are three different sections. Uh, the first is probably, you could say, sort of like entering into the idea of speculative writing and um, and also the remembrances that were there. The second section is kind of the heart of the collection. Uh, the title story is in there, and the third section is sort of memory and 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 things that. Uh, 
come with that. And I got the idea to organize it this way. I, I don't identify which are fiction and which are essays. I got the idea years ago. I read a book by Peter Nadas, a Hungarian author, in 2007. He had a collection called Fire and Knowledge, Fiction and Essays. And when I opened the book, I realized he hadn't identified which were fiction and which were essays. And in his case, a lot of them were in first person. I couldn't always tell. And I thought, wow, I love that. I'm going to do this too. Now with mine, I think some of them are more obviously fiction, some are more obviously essays, but some really kind of bridge that hybrid thing. And I, I think when the world is sort of uncertain, as it has been for quite a while now, everything is sort of mixed up in hybrid. So those monkeys, I, well, I was hiking in Hong Kong in the New Territories, and I came across these three monkeys, so I just had to take a picture of them. My publishers have described the book's themes as sort of existential disbelief. And I can say that um, in the 21st century, the first two decades have tested our sense of what existence is all about. Um, there have been many changes, especially in Hong Kong, you know. Um, but also in my, uh, you know, I became a citizen of the United States in 1987, and um there have been a lot of changes in this country as well. Now, um, as Anthony said, I have been living between sort of New York and Hong Kong for many, many years. And so um, I keep seeing these changes. And a big part of my going back to Hong Kong had to do with my mother's Alzheimer's. She was ill, so I went home and lived with her for quite a few years, um, which also meant that I was in this long-distance relationship with my husband. He was my long-term partner at the time, but... This went on for years, and it, it had its problems. At times it was difficult, but uh, we're still together, and we, we got married, so I guess something must have worked out. So that was part of the existential disbelief, is people say, you are in a relationship with somebody in New York, and in a New York, they go, with somebody in Hong Kong, you know? I mean, it, it just seemed like almost impossible. But that aside, um, there were many other things going on. So... What I'd like to do is take you through four of the pieces in the book. I'm not going to read a lot. I'm just going to talk a little bit about about them and what led up to the pieces that got written. I've picked like two that were fiction, two that are essays, and um, give you a sense of um, what the book's kind of about. Okay? So let's start with the first theme, which is the idea of vanishings. Um, a lot of things are disappearing and changing in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has often been called like this disappearing city, um, and it's sort of true. Um, but I experience a very personal uh, vanishing, and, and actually Madeline Thien, who's here tonight, knows about this. Um, in 2010, I, was, I went back to Hong Kong full-time. I actually got a full-time job. Um, before that, I was going back and forth. I still went back and forth after this, but I... I had a full-time job in Hong Kong at the City University of Hong Kong. They had asked me to come to start a low-residency Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, the first one in Asia, targeted mostly to people who lived in Asia. We managed to do it for four years. So, you know, each cohort would come in for two years. It, it's a... Um, it's a part-time program, and most of the students were older. They were professionals working um, and, and doing this. So they came in for short residencies and then worked one-on-one -on -one with um, advisors like Madeline, myself, etc. 
they closed it after four years. And um, they were trying to fire me um, very hard. I don't fire easily. <laughs> I just stood my ground. And my students put out a really big protest around it. There was quite a lot of media attention. We got a lot of support from writers around the world, from, you know, like the Asian American Writers Workshop in New York and places like that. A lot of the writers that we had invited, because on the right-hand side, like Kwame Dawes, for example, he didn't teach in our program, but he was the person who actually inspired me to start a program like this in the first place. Many of us who were behind all of this felt it was a real injustice. And even though the university said it's not, political, the reason it was financial, but, you know, we don't really believe them when they say things, because it wasn't true, and I knew that. So this personal vanishing, though, you know, I, I'm, I stayed six years, and I saw through the four cohorts of students. We graduated about 105 students. Some of them went on to win awards, publish books, do very well. I'm very proud of all of them, and I, I just wanted to make sure my students were okay. But eventually... I got my revenge. <laughs> and the title story, Monkey in Residence, because my title there was um, Writer in Residence. That's what I was. What you're looking at there, on the right-hand side, uh, Morning Glories. And the story is set up, this is fiction, Monkey in Residence, and very speculative. The story is set up with uh, sort of these morning glories. Uh, the rumors go through their vines, and the story goes through their vines. But um, but that's uh, you know that that's just sort of part of the the setup of the story. But that's the roof of um, what was like the sports center at City University. It collapsed. City University is a very it's a polytech type school, very STEM oriented. Um, they had this garden on the roof, but you know uh, despite the fact that we had all these great scientists there, they couldn't figure out that there was too much water and the roof actually collapsed. It was shocking. It was unbelievable. We were very lucky that nobody, not many people got hurt because there was a security person there who realized something was going on and got everybody out very quickly. But it's this kind of existential disbelief that I was encountering. And as I put together all the different things that had happened at CityU, I thought, I can write something that speaks to some of this. And so this is I'll just read you the opening couple of chapters of uh, a couple of pages of Monkey in Residence. In the spring of 2017, just after the grave sweeping Qingming Festival, the government of the Hong Kong SAR proudly announced funding for a new academic chair position, Monkey in Residence, to be given to the public universities. Its objective was to honor our famous ancestor, that half-god, half-mortal monkey. Monkey, as everyone knows, had sired several heirs, and the dynasties of monkeys that followed were, the government claimed, a significant family of special Chinese citizens from whom we should learn more about our own history, travels, and culture. What better place than at those institutes of higher learning where young minds are molded and refined? All over the city, huge posters with the character Monkey appeared, announcing a logo design and naming contest for the new chair position. The electronic poster was also all over the internet and even had its own Facebook page. How? Money in resident, logo descent and numbing concert for new char. Pri prize $11,980.20.
It took about a week, but the posters were eventually replaced with all typos fixed, and the price money corrected to $12,000. A government spokeswoman blamed the errors on their communications department intern from one of the university's English departments, whose recently appointed acting head was heard to declare, My English is not very good, ha ha ha. At least he was correct about that, his colleagues whispered, beleaguered as they were by the third acting head to be installed in less than two years. The government spokeswoman was, however, quick to add, this error is inconsequential, as a Chinese language version is correct, and after all, most in Hong Kong know Chinese, ha ha ha. Laughter by the powers that be had recently become a trend, a fashionable way to soften bad or fake news. Most of us nodded in agreement, although a few running dogs dissented, those long resident leftover colonial British or BBCs who neither read nor spoke Chinese. We wondered about these latter and wondered when they would get fed up and leave sooner rather than later, some wished, although others said, well, why care as long as they fed our economy and anyway we whispered English and Chinese meaning Mandarin and Cantonese are both our official languages so one can be bi or even trilingual right far more complaints were heard about the prize money where was the missing $19.80 was this corruption or a mistake inquiring minds wanted to know on Weibo Instagram even on LinkedIn Certainly along our vines, the whispers spread across the city. Eventually, the government's financial secretary gave in after much pressure by the dean of business at Hong Kong University, the leading school. The FS was a graduate of HKU, but as everyone knew, his myopic focus on the bottom line greatly surpassed his common sense. So I'll just stop there. So that's, um, you know, it's a satirical take, obviously, and it's, the one true thing about it is that we did have three acting heads in the English department at City University, and the, the last one who came and who, who closed out everything and tried to fire me, but got rid of a lot of the other English department um, professors as well, um, actually did say to us when he arrived the first day, my English is not very good. And we thought, and you are the head of English, why? <laughs> you know. So this was the kind of thing we were putting up with at the time. Okay, so, meanwhile, probably the more difficult thing that we were living with in Hong Kong was what I call the political vanishing. So, most of you probably have heard of Occupy Hong Kong that happened in 2014, where the city was taken over. Um, so, that sign there in the middle that you see, that's, um, that was at City University talking about, you know, lack of uh, democracy and the the movement was known as the umbrella movement because everybody used these yellow umbrellas and there was this library that somebody set up in the streets along with all the tents and and at city university also we had a goddess of democracy statue all that's gone of course none of this can happen anymore now um but of course that was 2014 Five years later, probably the biggest, um, we had the protest on June 12th in Central, which was huge. 
and then by November at Polytech University, that was a complete takeover, which was quite violent. Um, the, the whole university was occupied, and there were firebombs and everything else. And that really, there was a repression. There was a, a kind of the government really had to shut that down. And um, this really uh, was a, a, a major turning point in Hong Kong. So... I was in Hong Kong in 2014. I was still living there. 2019, I was no longer living there. I had moved back to, um, my mother had passed away already, so I would moved back to um, New York. Um, but I was there in November when all of this was going on. And the terrible thing was that, you know, the city that I used to just, like, travel around easily and never think anything of it suddenly was closed down in so many places. You just couldn't go there. And Polytech was near where I used to hang out a lot, near the harbor, and it, it was really, it was really dreadful to, to think about and to see. So I did write an essay, and the culminating point was July first, twenty twenty. That's when the national security law came into effect, um, and those purple signs. The police were carrying them all that day. So July 1st was the anniversary, of course, of the handover, which happened in 1997 um, on June 30th. So July 1st was always the day that we kind of celebrate, if you like. It's a public holiday. But meanwhile, what was happening for me was I had built a new house. And um, it was my dream home. It was the, the home that my husband and I now live in. But our contractor was a bit of a, you know... He didn't do a terribly good job in certain things. We had to, we eventually had to like hire other people to fix the problems. And I woke up one morning and there was water coming down from the ceiling and through the roof and there was, my basement was flooded. Fortunately, I hadn't put in the basement floor yet. So how, somehow these two things came together into an essay, which I call When Your City Vanishes. And, um, I'll just read you the opening of that to give you an idea of how this all came together. It used to be my day off, July 1st. I would rise early, maybe hit the gym, or meet my hiking partner for a walk through the new territories at sunrise, luxuriate in the empty trains of the MTR and buses that ran on time. By afternoon, it was back to my rooftop room and solitude before crowds thronged the harborside for the annual firework display. Or did I? Who truly recalls normal life accurately during COVID-19 lockdown when days at home seem eternal? In 2020, July 1st is political again. Rousingly, noisily slow, blasting global airwaves as it did back in 1997, the year that day became a public holiday in Hong Kong when my city returned to China. In case you've forgotten, my city was once the site of a many splendid thing. So titled for the novel by Han Suyin, a Eurasian medical doctor from Shanghai who fell in love with a married British correspondent and carried on a controversially public affair. He died while covering the Korean War. She wrote it as fiction, thinly disguised autobiography, that placed my city on the world stage, especially when glamorized as a Hollywood movie. 
Despite its romantic story, the novel is a very critical look at the historical, social, and cultural problems of my Chinese city. This political anomaly, this hybrid cosmopolitan exclave that flirts with both East and West. Now, concluding, conducting with intent, as all the purple police banners read that morning, may lead to arrest and prosecution. An intent that's slippery in meaning, secession, or subversion, thanks to the Hong Kong SAR's national security law that came into effect after midnight of July 1st, 2020. Peaceful protests are now threatened, despite our basic law, just as the police now have and continue to gain increasingly greater powers to arrest people for questionably illegal activities. One country, two systems. The promise, among others, that Hong Kong's rule of law will be separate from mainland China's legal system, is a debt of borrowed post-colonial time to retain our hybrid and cosmopolitan way of life for 50 years, until June 30th, 2047, to be exact. That morning, however, our lender extracts a rather large repayment, muddying the contracted time frame. Once again, I am watching my city vanish just a little bit more. Trust me, this is not fake news. The flow of bounty that was Hong Kong is closing on my vanishing city, not unlike the outdoor spigot that had to be shut off in my northern New York home the morning I awoke to a flooded basement. The year COVID raged. So I go on and tell the story of the flooding, and then there's memories of、uh, a flooding that I experienced as a child in Hong Kong when we had a big typhoon.、Um, so that's、um, that's that、uh, particular story. Let's move on to.、Um, for those of you who know Chinese, the Cantonese of that's Buiking versus Yindoi, and Buiking is like the past or the back. What I call the back view, which is a literal translation, and Yindoi is, of course, now or the now era, literally.、Um, so when when things are so difficult, often you know, so a lot of the times we we start reminiscing about the past. We start remembering the way Hong Kong was, and I grew up in this city. I, I didn't leave. The first time I left, I was seventeen. I went to college, and then I went back home when I was twenty after I got my BA and lived there for many years before I came back to the U.S. So Hong Kong was very much in my blood, as it was with a lot of other people. And so, what I'm going to Um, the the pictures on the side you see are、uh, Hong Kong back in the 1950s and 60s, and it's very much、um, the area where I grew up near the harbor. And you see、uh, one of those single-decker buses. Back then we had single-decker buses, and I remember taking them as a child quite a lot.、Um, but of course, by 2013, West Kowloon. So those of you who know Hong Kong, Kowloon's a peninsula. The west side of Kowloon used to be there was pretty much not a whole lot there. It was You know, there were beaches that were further up, closer to the new territories. But now we have a new railway expansion. This is finished already. But that back in 2013, I used to walk through there all the time, especially at night, and I'd take photographs and just try to document what was changing in my city. Because a lot of that used to be water. Of course, it's all reclaimed land. A lot of it. And、um, I've lived around so much reclaimed land much of my life. 
So I'm going to read to you from what is the opening piece in the book. But something has to open a book, right? And it's called Where the World Unwraps. Takhoi Saigai. Takhoi literally means to, you know, to break open or to open up, like the idea of unwrapping a gift. And so I was asked to write about, um, this was a, uh, a new publishing house at a Chinese university, and things were so kind of difficult at the time, so the editor said, you know, I'm going to ask people who, who, the writers who have left Hong Kong, who used to live here, to look back on Hong Kong. So I was asked to do one of these looking back at Hong Kong essays. So I look back to my school, school days. I went to a school called Marinol, and I was part of, that was the French class that I was in, and, and it'll become evident from that. And the, the, the uniform on the side is the terrible winter uniform we used to wear. That was back in 1965 to 70, so... Um, I think they have nicer uniforms now, but uh, back then it was really pretty horrible. Um, and this is some wall art at Central Market. In this essay, there are photographs, I, and this is one of them that I used. Um, and again, it's just photographs of places in Hong Kong as I walk through the city, just trying to document a little bit. So it's a bit like photojournalism, but not exactly. But anyway, where the world unwrapped, I'll just read you the first couple of pages. We were not truly native, but we were resident. We were not expatriate, but our passports were foreign. We were not temporary, but we were not permanent. Only a few live in Hong Kong now, but we all look back at the city as home because this was our city where the world once unwrapped all of our senses, the city whose chi still exhales a universe of dreams. There could never have been a better childhood, we say on Zoom or via WhatsApp, now that international travel has been wrested from our lives since the advent of COVID. We were all girls there once. We part Chinese, not quite Chinese, locally born other, mixed race or Eurasian. We Portuguese, English, Indian, Laotian, Malaysian, Indonesian, Danish, Spanish. We whose families arrive from many corners of the world. These days, we lose, we lose count. In 2019, I answered the call, reluctantly at first, a little wary of this old girls network from my Catholic primary and secondary school in Kowloon. French class, 1970. 1970 was the year that um, I graduated from high school in Hong Kong. French class, 1970, their WhatsApp moniker recalled a summer of freedom the year my Form 5 public exams were finally over and the future remained a blur of uncertainty. We were the French class girls. Students classified as non-Chinese enough who were exempt from taking Chinese as a subject. But French as a subject only began in Form 1. Before that, students either took Chinese or were part of what we called English study group. I had done both. Obedient slog obediently slogging my way through primary four Chinese until I finally admitted defeat. Not a minute too soon because I would definitely have failed Chinese at the end of primary six in the secondary school entrance exam. Alors, voilà, je suis, je serai, et nous sommes comme les étudiants françaises. With a few exceptions, it had been decades, over half a century, since I'd seen any of these women. 
Unlike the majority, I had until very recently lived and worked in Hong Kong and had split time between there and home in New York City for even longer, over some 20 years. In the past decade, I was resident far more often in Hong Kong, where I paid annual income taxes plus utility, rates and management fees for the family flat, as well as monthly charges for my own local landline, broadband and cell phone accounts. Some had left in the 60s, most by the 70s or the 80s at the latest, and did not have family to come back to visit, the way our Chinese classmates did. I was in touch with those Chinese classmates who returned to or remained in Hong Kong, and we regularly met um, the ones visiting from abroad. They were mostly not the French class girls, and over the years my friendship grew with the ones rooted in the city, and conversations were more often Cantonese than English. But among French class 1970, back when we were girls, we always saw the rest of the world as our future. Yet now, post-umbrella movement, post the subsequent unrest that rocked the city with protests, battles, barricades, firebombs, and tear gas, the likes of which we last saw in 1967, post the government crackdown so unexpectedly draconian in its repression of all freedoms we once took for granted. Now we look back and wonder, will Hong Kong belong to our future the way it belongs to our past? Um, we still have this WhatsApp group. Um, we, don't, we don't Zoom as much now because it, you know, things have changed a little bit. But um, quite recently, um, couple of the girls who are in Australia, because most of them are in Australia, Canada, a few in the United States, um, and there are a couple who are still in Hong Kong, um, and I'm hoping to see them when I go back, maybe next year, but um, two of them were saying, I don't think I'm ever coming back to Hong Kong, but as they're watching the news and seeing how, they said it would be heartbreaking to see how it's changed, because I mean... I have to admit, we were a rather privileged group because, you know, we got to live a little bit apart from local life, but um, we had a really amazing time as kids there, and, and our school, you know, could entertain us as French class students, and I had some wonderful French teachers there. So the last one I will introduce you to, do, to is the last bit of disbelief, which of course is the big one that the whole world has gone through, which is COVID. I was in Lisbon on March the 8th in 2020. Uh, we were doing, um, I was running an international MFA program and we were doing a residency there. Um, and we literally left and came back like a day. I, I arrived back in New York like a day before they started shutting down the airports. So by March 21st, that's what JFK airport looked like. I got out of the New York Times. And in November, same year, November 19th, I was walking through Soho. It was early evening, and I took photographs, and I'm thinking, Soho never looked like this. It was never so quiet. Um, I was living mostly upstate in my home in, the, in northern New York. I live up in the Adirondacks with my husband. and you know, we, But we come into the city, we still have our apartment here, and the whole world was just living in this weird disbelief. And of course, you couldn't go back to Hong Kong. Hong Kong was shut down the way China was as well. And so um, that 
made me think about it. And so everybody was sort of writing COVID stories, and I thought, well, what do I really want to write about? Um, yeah, maybe I'll put somebody in New York and got, who got stuck and couldn't go back to home, because I knew people who, who were stuck who couldn't go back. I've had students who were stuck also who couldn't go back. And so this is one of the stories that wasn't published until I, I put it into this book. And I decided to write something called Before, because I was thinking very much about not just COVID and what was happening, but I was thinking about aging also and memory, because after looking after my mother for so many years, I was really thinking about that. And I'm growing older myself, and of course my own memory too. I'm like, oh God, I can't remember things as well as I used to. I feel fortunate that I haven't been hit with uh, Alzheimer's <laughs> yet, <laughs> so I just keep hoping, but... I've done all the genetic tests and everything, you know, you, you do wonder about this. But I decided to write about a, a woman who's widowed um, and who's come back to New York. She meant to just sell the apartment that they had, but then she got stuck. And she, of course, couldn't go back for quite a while. So here's, and so that, these are pictures of New York, of course. Um, and my apartment is in uh, the Chelsea area, so I kind of just thought I should write a story set in that apartment. So that's what it is. Um, and it's called Before. Things were still fine, despite the dreams, until she forgot her grandson's name. It happened on their weekly Zoom, when he was being his usual, adorably talkative self. She had been half listening to his digressively long tale about a kindergarten classmate. So like his grandpa Bing, whose oral discourses were legend among his students. Lullaby prof was a rate my prof quip that infuriated him. When her grandson suddenly declared, How silly of Kuma to say my name's impossible to pronounce. My name's easy to say, right grandma? And she had stared at him, mute unable to recall his name for ten whole seconds until Lana, her daughter-in-law, said, Nai-Nai, are you muted again? After the call, she remained upset, almost dropped the coffee pot as she lifted it up to pour, caught it, but not before hot liquid flowed black on her right forearm, just before they signed off. Her son, Jasper, Although he's forever sung uh, to her, embarrassing him whenever she let slip his baby nickname, asked if anything was wrong, and she told him she was doing fine, everything was fine, and to stop worrying about her being alone in New York because things were worse elsewhere, and at least here the grocery store was just across the street. But she wasn't fine. Almost missed the call because daylight savings ended, and she'd forgotten possible she was always so religious about time differences for all her international work conference calls even social calls to friends so tiresome this time change uh, why can't the u.s drop it the way hong kong did 40 no no 41 years ago it was this noisome pandemic this tedious lockdown yet there was bing again hey you no more squawking from your privileged perch what she most wanted right now was to be home, where it was 12, no, 13 hours ahead in the evening, having Sunday dinner with her son and his family, savoring Lana's delicious food and playing with her grandson Sheng or Bartleby and his sister Yuchen or Monica, already two, chattering almost as much as her brother. 
After dinner, she'd go back to her flat next door. So lucky! Her neighbor was selling just when Jasper was buying. So convenient! They're being next door, and Bing would really have liked Lana. Listen to a little music and the eleven o'clock news before a restfully dreamless sleep. No, she mustn't squawk. She was extremely privileged, even if she was stranded in New York. It was temporary. At least this was still home, sort of. Although the apartment was old, it was centrally located, walking distance to every subway line on Fourteenth Street, and it was all hers now. The mortgage long ago paid off, a space for her and her family. Once before, it was even a rent-free home for her son when he landed his first job in New York after his MBA at UST, the University of Science and Technology in Hong Kong. As Song, no, Jasper said. Why come back to quarantine and waste money in a hotel? Yes, it made more sense to wait till things settled down. At least here she could prepare her own meals and had her own things in a comfortable enough space with her laptop and Wi-Fi. And besides, there was Zoom now in addition to Skype, Google Meet, FaceTime, WhatsApp, WeChat, and she could still talk to all her old school friends and former colleagues, even if they couldn't meet for yum cha or dinner. You know how they, you know how to use all those platforms, Jason said. So you can accommodate those who aren't as techy as you are. The way he stretched that techy made her laugh. Even her recurring dream of the past fortnight, not nightly but disconcertingly recurrent, was amusing or had been at first. A lover, not anyone she knew from real life, but in the dream, this man was a lover. She was about to call out to him because he was headed the wrong way, his back to her, but she could not remember his name. We just made love yesterday. I've known him forever. She'd say aloud to no one in particular, and then the panic. How could she possibly forget his name? It was absurd. In her dream, she was much younger, around forty, still sexual. Each time, just as the lover turned into the street ahead, when she muted, couldn't stop him from going in the wrong direction, she would startle awake. The first time she woke, she was wet down there, and would be subsequent times, but not always. Thank you very much. That's pretty much、um, what I have as a presentation, and I'll be very happy to take questions, comments, or whatever. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, I have a question. Sure.、Um, I don't know why I was like expecting a microphone for some reason, but、um, I'm like a huge fan of your writing, and I've like thank you your career for a long time.、Um, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like I've noticed that you sort of transitioned from writing more kind of longer form fiction and novels to. Kind of like more essays and nonfiction, and like emphasizing short stories as well.、Um, and I was really interested when you talked about like how something you were thinking about when writing this collection was sort of the kind of line between fiction and nonfiction.、Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to like, I mean, first of all, if you agree that that's like something that kind of has has characterized your career over time,、um, and also like why that sort of happened or、um, kind of reflecting.、Mm-hmm. I think you are right in that my I, my last novel came out、uh, in 2016, and、um, after that I had a memoir, but it was really short, and that was sort of commissioned, so that doesn't really kind of count, you know. And I'm working on another novel, which I hope to finish this year. I keep promising myself, but you know, novels take a long time, and you can only write so many novels.、Um, and I, I 
so in between, I found I, I, I wanted to write more short stories. I've always written short stories, but um, essays were newer. I didn't start writing essays uh, until sort of like like the 1990s, um, and mostly because I was asked to contribute to journals, magazines, newspapers, things like that. Um, but I find that I really came to like the essay form. And I hit a point where it was like, okay, I'm writing essays now. And I'm writing essays the way I write fiction in that I don't wait for somebody to commission it before I write it. Strangely, this book, uh, several of the pieces were commissioned, both fiction and essays, and that's really unusual. That doesn't really happen very much, you know. But for some reason, I think there was so much interest in Hong Kong that uh, that happened. But I also was commissioned by um, anthologies that were putting out fiction and wanted something from me. So I was like, okay, I'll do whatever, you know. Um, and so that's what happened. Um, but I think that I'm seeing, because I teach both. I, you know, I've been teaching creative writing for about 20-something years. Um, I used to just teach fiction. And then once I started publishing essays, I began teaching creative nonfiction and memoir. And I find that, well, memoir especially, people now refer to the novel as the non-fiction novel or the fiction novel, which you would never say that before. I mean, a novel was assumed to be fiction. And I think that the, the genres are blurring because most creative non-fiction these days is taught, you know, to tell a story. And there's even this idea that you can change some of what has happened. Um, I still tend to want to stick to the facts. Um, and I make it very clear if I am speculating. And that's why I chose to do some speculative work in here where I take, I, I call it an essay, but it's almost like fiction. But I make it very clear that that's what I'm doing. So I, I, I haven't quite crossed that line where I can just say, I'm just going to call this nonfiction and you can figure out what is real and what isn't, you know, because I, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm, I'm not a journalist, I never was, but I have worked for um, newspapers and I have a lot of respect for journalists, for good journalism, because um, I think it takes a lot to report the news objectively. I think it takes a lot to um, write a feature article and I've always appreciated, like if I've been interviewed by a, a good journalist, there's a big difference than the ones who expect you to write their whole story for them. So, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for journalism and I read a lot. I still, I'm a news hound, so I read a lot of media. So I, I think that while the lines are blurring in terms of techniques that you can use, and I, I do think that that's good, that the lyric essay or, you know, the speculative or meditative essays, things like that can be really interesting. And also, if you're writing about, uh, like you're writing a memoir, especially a trauma memoir or something, you know, you don't really remember the past exactly. And it's, it is a version. It is a story. So I, I, I think it's okay to use fictional um, techniques for it. I think that there still has to be a line drawn. I still think that there's a difference. But anyway, that's it. Hope that helps. Yes? You discussed uh, Hong Kong and how it changed during the I mean, what's your most uh, recent visit to Hong Kong and what sort of uh, tiny little things you, you know, noticed that have changed? Mm -hmm. 
the last time I was back was 2019. I haven't been back since. Partly, you couldn't really go back. It was quite difficult. I mean, you had to quarantine for like that's why I wrote that story before because at the beginning you had to quarantine for like three weeks. Now I have had friends, even my sister and her husband actually had to to travel through Hong Kong to go back to Australia. So they quarantined, and it was ridiculous because you're you're living in this hotel and um, you can't. Step outside, even you know you can't go to the gym. You got you have to stay inside your hotel room, and I'm thinking, does this really work? I mean, what does this do? I mean, and and the same thing was happening in China. I mean, I think you've all seen the news reports about Shanghai. Um, so the biggest change for me in Hong Kong, and something I've noticed, and I I, I recently I have another essay that I recently finished. Um, the thing I noticed really a lot is how it's. Become more like everywhere else. The the more it, the more time advances because everywhere else looks like everywhere else now. Um, I first noticed this when I was um, at the gym on the treadmill. You know, some of these treadmills have these videos, right? And then you're sort of going through uh, maybe a hill or whatever uh, by the water, and then you go through a town, and then you go. Around the town and all, and I'm looking at it, thinking, "That's Seattle. No, wait, that's Melbourne. No, wait, that's..." And I realize it doesn't matter because they all look the same. There's a certain pattern and look that you can almost pluck this out and put it there. And I realize that parts of Hong Kong are starting to look like that. Didn't used to be the case. Um, I mean, I first went to Paris and London in the 70s. Okay. When it was when Paris was very French and London was very English, I was in London last year, and London could be Hong Kong <laughs> in parts uh, because all the AI now has made things much more similar. You know, you can tap your card this way in the subway now. You can tap your card in London. You can. Uh, Hong Kong is still, I think, using, but they've they've just changed. They've got a new card. System now, and I told my sister to get me one. You know, I have a sister who still lives there. So I think um, the the truth about globalization is that it's making a lot of places the same. So trying to to uncover and eke out the parts that are unique to that city, I think, is very important. And we see it in poetry, we see it in literature, we see it in art. Um, I'm doing, um, I'm editing. Um, something called the Hong Kong Chronicles. I'm, I'm editing the English literature section. They asked me to do that chapter, and the idea was to try to chronicle um, like the last 20 years up to 2017. So there, there's this time limit thing uh, of what was happening in the English literature. So the English literature is, of course, much smaller than the Chinese literature. So the Chinese literature is several chapters, and I have one. You know, but in in trying to sort of chronicle it and put it together. Um, I was interested in how much had changed since when I first was a young writer, where there was like, what literature? <laughs> what writers? Now there's quite a, um, a healthy um, group of writers, and Hong Kong became much wealthier. That was a big part of it. I think the biggest change to Hong Kong was its economy. When it became part of the tiger economies, it became a, a, it's a rich city. You know, it's like Singapore, like um, Bangkok, and all of them. And and you watch all of these cities doing all this, and 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 I keep thinking, um, how do you hold on to the parts that are unique? 
that is the culture that is um, the way people think. And I see it. I, I just read an, 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 an anthology, a new anthology of poetry that's coming out. Um, they asked me to, you know, write a blurb for it, and I was just amazed at how well the poets have been able to capture um, the many different ways of being Hong Kong. Um, many of these, of course, uh, Hong Kong Chinese, um, writing in English and Chinese, some of them in, in translation, but they are also, of course, Westerners, because they always have been in Hong Kong, you know, that we've always had British and some Americans now and Canadians, um, Australians um, and Europeans, and they bring, and, and many of them intermarry, some of the locals, so you you have this very hybrid cosmopolitan culture there. And I, I think that that's changed because when I was a kid, I had, my best friend was Eurasian and the racism against her was pretty profound. Um, and that was common. Um, Eurasians were treated like um, really badly unless they were wealthy, you know, and even if they were wealthy, they were still kind of cast aside. But today, um, some people say, oh, I, I wish I were Eurasian, because they think that they're the best-looking people, you know, because they've got the best of East and West. Um, but that w wouldn't have been the case when I was growing up, you know. So there are a lot of changes, but as as many things change, a lot of things still, people still try to hold on to certain kinds of food, especially food is a big thing that, you know, it's being reinvented in, in ways, you know. Um, so I think I think this is true for a lot of places that have modernized. And Hong Kong is certainly no exception because it's a very, it's a big city. And, uh, you know, a lot of things happen. The, you know, we have this great art world there that's huge. And I think one of the things that's going to keep the economy going there, I have a funny feeling. Um, and we have a new museum and, and all kinds of things. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm hoping to go back next year. Um, when, uh, now they've made it, I think it's opened up and the flights are, are back again. So, But it's still slow. It's still not that fast, so. We'll see. Yep. Okay. Uh, do you find like it's gotten a lot harder to write about Hong Kong, especially now that you go back there less? Um, yeah. I guess kind of related to that. Like, I definitely agree that there is still like a very healthy, kind of vibrant writing community and poetry community in Hong Kong. Um, but I think, especially post COVID and post kind of 2019, it's become very oriented around Hong Kong's experience around both of those things. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would sort of maybe. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't want to use the word old guard, but like yeah. as someone who wrote about Hong Kong blah, 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 in like the 90s and the 2000s and 2010s, do you ever feel like maybe almost like a sense of FOMO for like um, uh -huh. being there to experience those things or to be able to write about those things in a more direct way? Um, part of me does feel that, but I have left Hong Kong. I don't have a home there anymore. So if I go back now, I'll be there as a visitor. Um, I mean, I still am very rooted in the city, so it'd be hard to completely let go of it. But, for example, the novel I'm writing, the setting is actually the Adirondacks. It's the first time I, I, I came to the Adirondacks. It was the first place I came to in, in the U.S. Um, a strange place to go to, because that's where I went to college. Um, but it, it's, um, it, it was hard for me to ever set anything there. I tried. I wrote stories and, on, and none of them worked. But this one novel kept dogging me for like about 40 years. And I finally said, okay, I'm going to write it. So the main character is an um, Asian-American mixed-race guy who grows up there. I had some cousins who grew up there, so I'm partly borrowing from a little bit of that. And they were mixed-race. But... Um, 
uh, but they all left. I mean, I was the one who came back, and they're like, why do you want to go there? We all left, you know? So there I am. But it's a beautiful part of the country. And I think it's, um, I wanted to, to try to record that. And, and he's actually, his father is from Singapore. So I, I got a different direction now. Um, I'm, I'm finding that I started taking Indonesian classes because I, I wanted to explore my other heritage, which I never did, because I studied Chinese instead, not Indonesian. So now I'm, I'm trying to look at my Southeast Asian side. Because I don't know that I will be writing as directly about Hong Kong anymore. I will write about Hong Kong of memory, but I'm not really a historical novelist. So I, I, I'm unlikely to write a historical piece, maybe a, a story, but I, I don't see writing a novel. But I do see that intra-Asia interest is still there, and I will probably still travel in the area. Um, so probably that will inform my writing in the future. But I'm not sure, because you never know. And I think coming back to the U.S., I think I, I'll be writing more about the U.S. than I have in the past. And... Now that I'm, you know, my main address is the U- United States and I'm like a resident of the United States and my taxes are here, um, I, I do find that I'm wanting to write some of these stories about the U.S. and about Americans I know uh, because this is my other identity and also about being American. My, my last essay collection, This Vicious Fowl, the opening essay is called To Be American. Because I was trying to figure out what does it mean for somebody like me to be an American. Um, I mean, okay, I love baseball, but that's not enough by itself. But I am actually far more interested as of last summer now in baseball than I have been in a long time. Because I'm actually here and I can watch the game. It's hard to follow it from from abroad when you're traveling because it's, you know, the game's at all the wrong times. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm a big Mets fan. Sorry. Yankee fans, <laughs> but um, I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of following the Mets really closely now and seeing, because baseball is an interesting game, and it's a literary kind of game in a way, you know, it's the game that, that's often in novels and literature, so I'm, I'm, I probably won't write a baseball story, it's unlikely, but I think I'm going to find a way to, to deal with baseball in, somewhere, maybe in an essay, I don't know. So I don't know what I'll write about in terms of Hong Kong. It's not so important for me to know what's happening everywhere. But I'm also older, you know, and my friends are also older. And we're kind of like, oh, let's just stay home. <laughs> um, we're just too lazy. There was a time when I was like, oh, I want to see the next, what's the newest restaurant? What's the newest, you know, hotspot place to go to and all. Um, but not as much anymore. I miss the hiking there, though. I miss the new territories. I really do. Because I find it... A little intimidating here. I find the outdoors here too int- intimidating. It's too big for me, you know. Okay, I want to thank Sushi again uh, for a wonderful presentation. Uh, you can purchase Monkey and Residence and other speculations online from the Signal 8 Press website for $19.99. Those of you here can purchase it tonight for $15. Those of you online, uh, too bad for you. <laughs> well, there's Amazon. Yes, Amazon as well. Uh, the link is available on uh, Sue's uh, talk page. Uh, please uh, check it out after this talk. And with that, have a good evening. And remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And have a good weekend. And please purchase a book. Thank you. <laughs>